1 Corinthians chapter 14. Tonight we're going to begin at verse 20. Last week we covered the first half of this chapter, and I would uh, recommend the tape to you if you weren't here last week, because 1 Corinthians 14 deals with two very important issues. Uh, actually, more than two, but the two that it's issued, the issues that it's focused on is the functioning of the gifts of prophecy and tongues in the church. Now, in the first 19 verses of the chapter, Paul has laid it out very plainly, first of all, that the purpose of tongues is to speak to God and not to man. The gift of prophecy is there to encourage, to edify, to comfort men. The importance of tongues being interpreted in the public meeting, if it'll be benefit to anybody else. And the importance of when we gather together, it's not just an individual little bless me club. If we all came to church together and just all got in our own little sections of the room and didn't talk to each other and weren't with each other and just had our own little prayer and devotional time, Paul would say, do that at home. When you come together, it's for the common good. It's for the common edification of the group that you meet. So now here in verse 20, he's continuing on with the idea of speaking in tongues. And he says, brethren... Do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people. And yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is judged by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. I stand before you this evening being very honest in saying that this uh, six-verse passage of Scripture that I read to you contains, I think, one of the most difficult problem texts of the entire New Testament, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But beginning with verse 20, you see how Paul is challenging the Corinthian Christians and telling them, don't be children in understanding. Now, we all understand the importance of coming to Jesus with a childlike faith, the way that a child just simply trusts mommy and daddy, and isn't that the way we should be? You, know, you don't see a three-year-old or a four-year-old worrying about the electric bill or the mortgage. Mommy and daddy might be worrying about it, but the, the kid isn't, right? The kid looks at the refrigerator and it's a magic food box. I mean, food just keeps coming out of it, and it's just great. And they don't worry about anything. It's just They worry about you know, if they're going to get to watch enough cartoons on television, if, uh, how much playtime they're going to get. Those are the concerns of a child. Well, we need to have that kind of childlike trust and faith in God. But in understanding, let's not be children. In understanding, let's be mature. And, you know, children can be very selfish. Their world revolves around them. And it's as children grow up that hopefully they lose some of that self-centered focus. I mean, hopefully that's what maturity is all about. You learn that your needs, your desires, your happiness, your comfort, it's not the most important thing. And you need to have a heart and a mind for others. The the problem with the Corinthian Christians is they had a selfish desire to edify themselves at the expense of others in the meeting. The only thing they cared about when they went to church is if they felt blessed. Well, if they felt blessed, the meeting was great. Doesn't matter what happened to everybody else. Friends, that's a childlike understanding. And Paul says, don't be children in understanding. Then he goes on, he says, in malice be babes. Don't, you know, when it comes to being mean to each other, you know, be like a baby in that. You don't know anything about that. However, in understanding, be mature. Then he goes into verse 21. In the law it is written, with the lips of other tongues, excuse me, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet for all that, they will not hear me. Now here Paul is quoting from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. In Isaiah chapter 28, the apostle Paul excuse me, the prophet Isaiah, here quoted by the Apostle Paul, the prophet Isaiah is announcing judgment to the people of Israel. So it's sort of condensed the idea here. He's saying, you didn't hear the words of the Jewish prophets that came to you. 
The Jewish prophets came to you speaking in Hebrew, and you did not receive them. So he says, now you're going to hear the voices, the languages of other people. You're going to hear other men coming in your midst, and they're going to speak languages you don't understand. And that's going to be a sign to you. It's going to be a sign of judgment. And as it turns out, the Assyrian invaders spoke a language the Israelites could not understand, and they took them away to Assyria in captivity, and they lived in the midst of a people whose language they did not understand. By the way, I mean, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, going away to another culture, and you don't understand what people are saying. It's pretty humbling. And especially it's humbling, too, because when you're around those people and you start to learn a few rudimentary phrases, you pretty much can just speak as a child, and that's humbling. You know how to say please and thank you, and that's about it. You become very polite, you know, when you're in another country like that. It's all like, yes, no, please, thank you, that's about it. Now, Paul says, you're going to receive this judgment. You're going to hear tongues spoken, tongues that you don't understand, and it's going to be a sign unto you. So again, in Isaiah chapter 28, tongues were a sign of judgment upon the Israelites. Foreigners who spoke in unknown tongues invaded their country. And Paul is saying that today also, tongues are for a sign. See this? He says again, verse 21, look at it carefully. He says, With men of other tongues and with other lips, I will speak to these people, and yet for all that they will not hear me. The speaking in an unknown tongue was a sign unto Israel. In a similar pattern, Paul's saying, verse 22, therefore tongues are for a sign. So the, the bottom line is simply here, is tongues are for a sign just like it was in Isaiah chapter 28. Now, in verse 22, after Paul says tongues are for a sign, this comes to me one of the most problematic texts of the whole New Testament. Paul says tongues are for a sign. Now look at it carefully. Not for those who believe, or not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. In other words, Paul is saying that tongues are a sign, not to believers, but to who? To unbelievers. And then what does he say? But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Okay, you got that? Prophecy is for believers. Tongues are assigned to unbelievers. All right, now we might be following you there, Paul, but you see here, the, the, the straight reading of the text just presents one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. In the straight reading of the text, again, Paul says, tongues are assigned to unbelievers. Prophecy is assigned to those who believe. Now, what's the problem with that? Look at verses 23, 24, and 25. Verse 23, therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you're out of your mind? It's like, it seems like Paul's saying one thing in verse 22 and another thing in verse 23. Go on, verse 24, 25, don't make it any easier. He says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he's convinced by all, he's judged by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Are you catching the problem here? In verse 22, Paul's saying, tongues are a sign for unbelievers and prophecies for believers. But in verses 23, 24, and 25, he's saying tongues are more beneficial for believers and prophecy is more beneficial for unbelievers. And it's like, Paul, I don't get it. Which is it? Is it one or the other? Now, perhaps Paul is saying that tongues are indeed a sign to unbelievers, but not a good sign. They're a negative sign. They're a sign of judgment. Now, this sort of follows along with the passage he quoted from Isaiah chapter 28. The tongues of other men that the Jews would hear in Isaiah 28, was that a good sign or a bad sign? It was a bad sign. You're judged. Your nation's been conquered. You're going to be taken away in exile. Is that what he's talking about? Well, maybe. In this way, you could say that tongues indeed are assigned to unbelievers, but as unbelievers look at Christians speaking in tongues and don't understand it, and think that they're crazy, somehow that shows their lack of spiritual understanding, and it can be a sign of judgment unto them. I can say that that's not wholly satisfactory to me, but it's about the best I can do. Except for one other possibility. 
Other people have suggested that the real problem here is an error by someone who copied the verses very early in the history of the Bible. That actually what Paul wrote was just switched. Matter of fact, I don't know if you've ever heard of the respected translator J.B. Phillips. The J.B. Phillips version is really a wonderful translation of the New Testament. And J.B. Phillips actually translates this verse like this. He says, That means tongues are a sign of God's power, not for those who are believers, excuse me, not for those who are unbelievers, but to those who already believe. Then it says, Prophesying, on the other hand, is a sign of God's power to those who do not believe rather than to believers. Now, again, it's important to note that J.B. Phillips does not believe that the Holy Spirit made a mistake here. He believes that somewhere early on, a copyist of Paul's letter here made a mistake and switched it, which would be not an impossible thing to do when you're copying something by hand, right? You can switch the word order and just you know, put something in the wrong position. So it's possible that what Paul intended to say, and what Paul actually did say, not just intended to say, was in verse 22, he could have said, therefore tongues are for a sign not to those who are unbelievers, but believers instead of the other way around. Now, let me back up, though, and put it in one other context. A good principle of understanding the Bible is always to interpret what is hard to understand in light of what is easy to understand, right? In other words, if you've got two passages speaking about tongues, and one of them's pretty clear, and the other one's kind of confusing... Interpret the one that's kind of confusing in light of what the one that's clear says. And I've got to say, verses 23, 24, and 25 seem easier to understand than verse 22. Because it's easy to believe or to see how an unbeliever hearing Christians speak in tongues might say, you're out of your mind, right? Unbeliever comes to a bunch of Christians and worships, and matter of fact, some of you may have had that exact experience. You've come in amongst a bunch of Christians speaking in tongues, maybe at a Pentecostally-oriented church. You go, what is going on here? These people have flipped out. What's happening? Now, it's also, see, it's also easy to see, I should say, that prophecy could convict the heart of an unbeliever, causing them to repent, and like Paul says in verse 25, worship God and report that God is truly among you. So while we may not understand exactly what Paul means by tongues are a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, we know that he means that tongues are not intended to minister to unbelievers. We know that. If they're a sign, they're not a good sign. It's a negative sign of judgment. Tongues do nothing to bring an unbeliever closer to God. Instead, they will probably turn him off. Now, might I say this? Understanding that tongues are a sign, even in a negative sense, we must also very right up front declare that this is not the primary reason for the gift of tongues. They are not mainly intended by God to be a sign to unbelievers. That's not the main intention that God has for the gift of tongues. Even assuming that this is what Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, originally wrote, Paul has much more to say about the role of tongues in the believer's personal communication with God than he does about tongues being a sign to unbelievers. Perhaps Paul is saying something like this. Hey, if you insist on speaking in tongues in your church meetings instead of in your own personal devotional life, the only good that comes from it is that it's a sign of judgment to unbelievers. Because they think you're simply crazy when they hear you speaking so. It shows that they don't understand the things of God and they're headed towards judgment. But how much better it would be if you would emphasize prophecy instead of tongues. Then everybody could be blessed, believer and unbeliever together. That's my best shot at understanding what Paul's talking about here. But I'm ready to tell you that this is a problematic passage. But in verse 25, you see how he ends this little section where he says, And so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. You know, this can be done through the gift of prophecy, either by an evident word of prophecy. So, you know, thus says the Lord, you know, uh, so forth and so on, you know, this. And, and somebody is convicted and said, wow, that's me, God's speaking to me. Or it oftentimes happens 
as the gift of prophecy happens quite naturally and perhaps in a hidden way in the midst of a sermon. I mean, you don't really know it when it's happening, but I mean, I'm more aware of it than you are, but oftentimes in the midst when I'm teaching, God will give me a spontaneous word that I think is just inspired by him, maybe an example, maybe a way to drive home the point, maybe something like that, that just directly touches the life of somebody, and I have no idea who it's touching or how it's touching, but I'll meet them out at the, at the door greeting them, and they'll look at me with a look of almost panic in their eyes, and, you know, how did you know this about me is what they'll want to know. And, you know, obviously I didn't, but the Holy Spirit did, and, and this kind of thing, well, it just, it just happens. And it's a glorious thing when it does. Many come to a unique conviction from the Holy Spirit in this very manner. Now, applying these principles to public worship, now he goes on in verse 26. He says, How is it, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Now again, let's remember, Paul is writing here, as in the previous portion of the chapter, of the conduct of the Corinthian Christians when they come together. This is what it's like for them when they come together in a church meeting. And he says, when you come together in a church meeting, each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Paul sees the gathering of the Corinthian church as a time when people come to participate and to give to one another, not merely to receive. Now we can easily picture how this dynamic would work among the Corinthian Christians. First of all, you should get it out of your mind that the Corinthian Christians would meet in a manner like we're meeting right now. You see as many people as there are just here in the room among you right now, it would be unusual for this many Christians to gather together in the ancient world in the days of the apostles. Because there just weren't many rooms this size that could hold them. You know, there were no churches built until, oh, the year 250 or afterwards. Uh, sometimes they could meet in a rented hall, like we find in the book of Acts, where Paul met teaching in the school of Tyrannus, but that was unusual. Most of the time, Christians met in homes. And homes of those days were pretty small. Even a wealthy person would have a room that could hold maybe 10 tops, 15 people. And how a church would be organized in the ancient world was by house churches all over the city. Now, believe me, friends, it's not because they thought it was more spiritual to have house churches. It's not because that's what they thought God really was. That's just the way it was. I mean, practicality forced them to do it that way. And so with all the house churches scattered over the city of Corinth, they would meet in these small groups, and there would be a freedom, and not only a freedom, a responsibility to not only receive, but to give. So they would come together and one person might give by reading or singing a psalm. Another might offer a word of teaching. Someone might pray in a tongue along with an interpretation. So someone else might have a revelation, a word from God's heart and mind. You see, in a small home fellowship type setting, this is how the church should work together. But when more people are gathered together, this sort of philosophy of everybody shares something with somebody else becomes more difficult. I mean, even with the room gathered as many people as we have right here this evening, if everybody were to stand up and share something with everybody else, we'd never get through the evening. We'd be here, you know, a long time. Now, when you've got ten people in a room, ten can share something with the other ten. But among thirty or sixty or a hundred people, there isn't time to allow everybody to share something with everybody else. Plus, let's be very honest with this. Once the group gets larger... The I want to feel important by talking to everybody dynamic gets much more in play, right? Doesn't it? I mean, it can be bad enough in a smaller group, but I mean, if it can be present among 10 people, how much more among 100 people? But you know, the dynamics of a small group is why so many people are blessed and why so many people find great spiritual growth through a home group. Because it provides a perfect context for the Everybody shares something with everyone else idea. And this hunger has really led to the amazing growth of the home church or the house church movement of our generation. You know, one of the amazing things of the church all throughout the world has been the explosion of the home church and the house church movement. And it's a good thing. You know, I know that when I uh, first became a Christian, the first two or three very formative years of my Christian life, when I was in junior high and high school, 
small home Bible studies played an essential role in my growth and spiritual formation. And I think it's a marvelous thing for Christians to be plugged into these kind of groups. But at the same time, there's some pitfalls in this kind of approach. You see, it's easy for people of poor doctrine or weak character to dominate such a group. It's easy for the group to focus not on the truth of the word, but on how one feels about the truth. You know, and everybody's sharing. It's how do you feel about it? How do you feel about it? How do you feel about it? And maybe of necessity, it's more feeling focused. But friends, you know, there comes a point where how you feel about the word of God and how you feel about the word of God and how I feel about the word doesn't really matter. It's what it says that really matters. Spurgeon once described a man coming from such a gathering and he was meeting a friend and, and the friend asked him, oh, well, how was the meeting? And the guy replied, oh, it was wonderful. Nobody knew anything and we all taught each other. Well, that's how it is at some home groups, you know, and that's a possible pitfall from it. You see, I think it's safe to say that when it comes between the choice between a house church or a larger church, the issue is not right or wrong. Both of them have an important place to play in God's plan for the world. God has used both, God is using both, and God will use both. Both are essential and greatly needed today for the health and the strength of the whole body of Christ. But I want you to realize, at the same time, even though the true outworking of everybody share something with everyone else, how it really can't happen in a gathering as large as we have here this evening, the idea can still work and be a great blessing to you here tonight. But it's not expressed in everybody share something with everyone else as if each one of you are going to come up to the platform and speak for five minutes or something like that. You know, because first of all, some of you couldn't drag you up here. (laughs) Secondly, maybe even bigger problem, we couldn't get you to stop after five minutes. I've seen how it goes. But instead of it being everybody shares with everyone, how about this? Everyone shares something with someone else. You know, my friends, that kind of philosophy says, I'm coming to church, but I'm not coming just to receive a blessing. I am coming on a mission. I'm not going to leave that church building until I have been a blessing to somebody else. And I'm going to ask God for an opportunity to bless somebody else. I'm not leaving there until I pray for somebody, until I say an encouraging word to somebody, until I lift somebody up, until I do some work of kindness or something. I'm not leaving there until I give something to somebody else when I come. Friends, you know, this way of thinking can make the 15 minutes before church and the 30 minutes after church some of the most exciting ministry time that happens at church. Did you know that that sometimes hearts are more touched in the 15 minutes before and the 30 minutes after by what you do in ministering among each other than what happens during the meeting? You need to take seriously your responsibility to be a, a 1530 minister. Someone who comes a little early and ministers to people before and afterwards you're ministering to people before. You know, you see somebody after, so, wow, what do you think about what, what we were going through in the Word? Man, let's pray about it. I need that to work in my life. You know, the, the only prayer that happens here after, it doesn't have to happen up front here at the platform with the prayer team. It can really happen out there, too. See, my friends, that can make it the best and most exciting time of ministry. It's a very big mistake for anyone to think, if I'm not up on the platform, I can't minister to somebody else today. Instead, you guys should come on the lookout. You should come on the prowl to look for people to pray for. Man, I tell you, if somebody walks through this door with that depressed, downcast look, there should be about four people fighting over the chance to pray with that person. No, I saw him first. No, I saw him first. I want to pray for him. See, my friends, there's, there's opportunities to pray with people, to encourage people, to help people, to meet people. You know, that's ministry right there, meeting people, to love people. There's opportunities like that every time you come to church. 
And you can fulfill the idea of this verse here where it says, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Friends, that's the goal for coming together as a church. It's not to be entertained. It's not to even be pleased with a blessing. We gather for edification, for the spiritual building up we need to live lives that glorify Jesus Christ outside of the walls of this church. As Paul said in Ephesians 4.12, the goal is the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Our Christian lives are lived out on the outside, and we come to be strengthened and built up and equipped when we all come together as a church family. Friends, he says, let all things be done for edification. It looks outward. It doesn't say, let everything be done for my edification. It means let everyone come to church with a heart that wants to build somebody else up. Should I let Spurgeon say it? (laughs) Spiritual self-indulgence is a monstrous evil, yet we see it all around. On Sunday, these loafers must be well-fed. They look out for such sermons as will feed their souls. The thought does not occur to these people that there is something else to be done besides feeding. Amen. God give us outward-looking hearts in ways that we can touch other people's lives when we come to church. Now, verse 27, Paul's going to talk about the role of speaking in tongues publicly. He says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three at the most, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Now, clearly, Paul will not prohibit speaking speaking in tongues in a church meeting. Though, remember, he primarily has in focus smaller groups of, of house churches meeting together. Because if the tongue has an interpretation, there's a potential for blessing others. So Paul will not prohibit it. Yet, Paul will not really encourage it either. So, tongues must be carefully regulated. Listen, two or three at the most. If you must speak in tongues at your church meetings, don't do much of it. Don't focus on tongues. And if you're going to do it, do it each in turn. More than one person should not be speaking in tongues to the congregation at any one time. And let one interpret, Paul says. Don't speak in tongues at all. Even if it is just two or three people, or even if it is each in turn, don't do it at all if you will not have an interpretation. Now, friends, speaking in tongues at a church meeting that does not observe these scriptural guidelines is wrong. It might be well-motivated, it might be done with a good heart, but it is still wrong because it goes against the plain teaching of the Bible. I don't know if you've been to a church like this, but maybe sometime during the praise and worship time, maybe sometimes during a prayer, they kind of have what might be called the let's all speak in tongues time. And they let's all speak in tongues for however long they want to do it. And some people are doing it really loud, and some people get kind of rhythmic, and some people, whatever, but it's all let's all speak in tongues time. And you read a verse like this. I mean, look at verses 27 and 28. And you say, how do they possibly justify that in light of 1 Corinthians 14, 27 and 28? Well, some justify it, by making a false distinction. They say there's actually two gifts of tongues. One of them is the gift of tongues, and that's regulated. But the other one is your prayer language, and that's not regulated. And they say that's a different thing, and that's not what Paul's talking about here. Hello? I don't, I don't get that at all. I really don't. Um, I just I don't know what to say about that other than then it's a false distinction, and I take it just as an excuse for not obeying the Scriptures. I just don't understand it, but that's the distinction they make. Now, some people might say, and you might have the question in your mind, what about those occasions in the Bible where many people were speaking in tongues at the same time, and perhaps without an interpretation, such as on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? Well, you know what I would simply say? I would simply say that in their enthusiasm and in their excitement, they went beyond scriptural order. Now, no harm came of it. Although, in Acts chapter 2, what did the unbelievers think of what was going on? They thought they were nuts. They thought they were drunk. 
So, friends, you see the result of it. But if you were say, did, did uh, the people on the, on the day of Pentecost and speaking in tongues with it, did they act according to scriptural order? I would say, strictly speaking, no. Did any harm come of it? No, not really. And I think that teaches us something right there, too. You know, we must never be too afraid of a little occasional excess. I think sometimes Christians get too afraid of that. Oh my gosh, oh, what's going to happen? If some, oh, what's going to happen? You know what? If you've got a church where the word's being taught, where you've got godly leadership, don't sweat it. It'll get corrected. You don't have to walk around with this great big fear of something wrong happening. If there's a little excess... It'll just be gently guided into scriptural order. Because if you're too fearful about excess, then you'll never step out and do what the Lord's telling you to do. Friends, if you're too afraid of it, you'll never be freely led by the Holy Spirit. And you'll have order. Yes, we have order in our church. But it's the order of a dead body. Yeah, that's right. It's order, right? My mother uh, was a nurse and whenever we were watching TV and, and watching one of those medical shows, you know, whatever, one of the old medical shows that were on when you were a kid, and the doctor comes on and, well, what's the patient's status? Well, he's stable. My mom would crack up. She said, stable. She said, dead is stable. <laughs> well, and it's true, right? I mean, there's nothing more stable than a corpse. It's, nothing's, nothing weird's happening there. So friends, what I'm just saying is that we can be too afraid of excess to the point where it paralyzes us from stepping out in what the Lord would have us step out in. And I think if you got the good foundation, then you can just be free to, to go forth on that foundation and know that if there's a little godly excess somewhere, now, you just be guided back and it's no big deal. But Paul goes on to say here in verse 27, if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. And you know what I think is significant about this? Paul says, listen, you can make a rational choice about the gift of tongues. If there's no interpreter, then stay silent. It's not like, oh, my body's taken over. I have to speak more than this tongue. And it comes out, ah, oh, there it goes. I didn't want to. It just came out. The Spirit made me do it. Paul says, no. No, you know there's nobody there who will interpret, and God hasn't given you the interpretation. Don't do it. You're not compelled by the Holy Spirit to speak out in tongues. If there is no interpreter present, then tongues, the tongue speaker is fully able to keep silent in the church. By the way, he says keep silent in the church. This reminds us that Paul is talking in the context of church meetings, not a person's own devotional life. So he says, speak unto himself and to God. Friends, I want you to know that the issue isn't whether or not a person can speak in tongues during a church service. That's not the issue. The issue is whether or not a person should speak publicly in tongues during a church meeting. If you want to speak unto yourself and to God, knock yourself out. Praise the Lord. You're always free to pray in tongues unto yourself and unto God. And again, please notice that. Who are you speaking to? Unto God. God. It reminds us that the audience of the gift of tongues is God, not men. Now he goes on here, verse 29, that prophecy must also be conducted in order. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So, even as tongues are to be regulated at the meetings of the church, so is prophecy. Friends, the whole meeting of the church should not be given over to prophecy, but only two or three should speak at any given meeting. I want you to notice something. Isn't it obvious from 1 Corinthians 14 that in the context of a church meeting, Paul is far more positive about the gift of prophecy than he is about the gift of tongues, right? No doubt about it. Yet even the gift of prophecy should not be made the centerpiece of the church service. You see what he's saying here? Friends, the focus of congregational life is not to be the gifts of the Spirit. The focus of congregational life is to be the Word of God and worship. That's the focus. And the gifts 
flow at God's pleasure under his direction around the focus of the word and worship. Now, as the prophets speak, notice what he says here in verse 29, let the others judge. You see, even as the prophets speak, others are to judge. Friends, no word from the Lord is to be received without careful consideration by the leadership present at the meeting. As John said in 1 John 4, 1, he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You know, indeed, Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, that even if we or an angel from heaven preached to you any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Friends, Paul is saying that even if an angel were to come down from heaven right now and give you a prophecy, a word from God, you judge that too. You just don't receive it. So what are the standards that a prophecy should be judged by? Well, first of all, you judge a prophecy by the established word of God. Friends, God will never contradict himself. Never. Let me say something categorically. I think that God speaks to people just as clearly today as he did in the time of the apostles and as he did in the time of the prophets. Friends, God is God. How can God do anything imperfectly? I think God speaks just as clearly today as he did back then. But there is a big difference. I think with the apostles and prophets, God gave them a unique gift. You know what the unique gift was? The gift to hear God perfectly. And while God speaks just as perfectly from heaven, right? How could he speak any differently? I don't think God gives the gift of hearing perfectly. That was unique unto the apostles and prophets. That's why... If you got some blank pages at the end of your Bible, you know how it is in the book, you know, sometimes you have some blank pages at the end. There's not going to be anything else added there, folks. God is not giving the gift of perfect hearing anymore. The scriptures are set. Therefore, any word that somebody receives from the Lord, we praise God for it. But we test it. We judge it by the revealed word of God. Friends, it is wrong to assume that anyone hears perfectly from God, and so it is wrong to put too much trust and too much faith in a word of prophecy. I would say it's also a bad idea to record them. I don't know why I say that. I can't quote you scripture and verse on that. There's just something that seems to me improper about that, and I'm just giving you my opinion on that. And Sometimes I know people keep little notebooks of prophecies and such. I personally think it's a bad idea to record them. I think it gives them too much authority. I think we have a written word from God. So if God's given you a word to your heart, if God's given you a prophetic word, as he has given me, I believe God's given me prophetic words on numerous occasions, some of them having to do with my life and my calling and my ministry. And I remember those things and I cherish them, but I don't write them down. God's given me a written word. But I remember his word, and God, if it's your word, you're going to fulfill it. See, my friends, I I think it's a bad idea to record such prophetic words. I think it's a bad idea to meditate on such prophetic words. God's given you a written word. God's given you a word to meditate on. Thank God for, and look at 1 Corinthians 14.3. Thank God for the edification and exhortation and comfort that prophecy brings, right? That's what he says prophecy's for. But friends, don't let it eclipse God's eternal word. Prophecy today is like the moon, and God's word is like the sun. Prophecy can shine forth with light. It can light your way on a dark night, but it's nothing like the light of the sun, my friends. And it receives its light as a shining from the light of the word of God. But friends, sometimes, sometimes people let the moon eclipse the sun, and it should never be so. Calvary Chapel pastor Tom Stipe, who used to be a pastor, a leading pastor in the Vineyard Movement, wrote in the foreword of the book Counterfeit Revival, speaking to this prophecy of prophecy, this problem of prophecy eclipsing the word. And let me read you this. It's a few paragraphs, but I think it's very pointed. It says, after only a couple of years, the prophets seem to be speaking to just about everyone on just about everything. 
Hundreds of members received the gift of prophecy and began plying their trade among both leaders and parishioners. People began carrying around little notebooks filled with predictions that had been delivered to them by the prophets and seers. They flocked to the prophecy conferences that had begun to spring up everywhere. The notebook crowd would rush forward in hopes of being selected to receive more prophecies to add to their prophetic diaries. Not long after prophecy du jour became the primary source of direction, a trail of devastated believers began to line up outside of our pastoral counseling offices. Young people promised teen success and stardom through prophecy were left picking up the pieces of their shattered hopes because God apparently had gone back on his promises. Leaders were deluged by angry church members who had received prophecies about the great ministries they would have but they had been frustrated by local church leaders who failed to recognize and facilitate their new anointing. After a steady diet of the prophetic, some people were rapidly becoming biblically illiterate, choosing a -a dial-a-prophet style of Christianity instead of studying God's word. Many were left to continually live from one prophetic fix to the next, their hope always in danger of failing Because God's voice was so specific in pronouncement, yet so elusive in fulfillment. Possessing a prophet's phone number was like having a storehouse of treasured guidance. Little clutched notebooks replaced Bibles as the preferred reading material during church services. See, my friends, that is putting prophecy in too high of a place in relation to God's word. And we put God's word first. That's how we judge prophecy. Yet there is another standard by which we judge prophecy. Not only the word of God, but we also judge it by a second standard. And that's the standard of agreement. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, it says, by the way, stating a principle that's repeated at least six other times in the Bible, saying, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And you know what? If you bring forth a prophetic word and none of the leadership in this room agrees with it in their heart, in their spirit before the Lord, we don't receive it as being from the Lord. And you say, I know it's from the Lord. I know it's from the Lord. Well, we don't. (laughs) Because by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And you know what? If God's speaking it to you, then he can speak it to me or maybe not to me, but maybe to some of the other leadership present. God will confirm his word. From the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. God will confirm his word to the heart of the leadership present at the meeting. Therefore, prophecy may be judged as not from God, not because it contradicted the scriptures, but because the leadership judged that it simply wasn't what the Lord wanted to say at the church body at that time. You know, it can even happen with somebody saying, God gave me this scripture. You know, somebody could say, Pastor, God gave me the scripture for the congregation, and the scripture is a heavy scripture about repentance and rebuke. And the pastor prays about, you know what? I don't think God's saying that to the congregation. Maybe he's saying it to you, (laughs) but I don't think he's saying it to the people. My spirit doesn't bear what, it's God's word. Well, it's God's word, but that isn't what the spirit is saying to us, this congregation, at this place, at this time. So that's not the word of the Lord in a specific sense for right now. Now this brings up a very important question, probably something you're thinking about right now. What should be done with someone who speaks forth a prophecy and it's judged to be not from God? And we got a little pile of rocks out back out here. And we invite the person to come out for the laying on of hands. And... No, my friends, given the environment at most church meetings... The church leadership should gently say that they don't bear witness with that word. And the person, given that they have the right heart, should never be branded a false prophet or a dangerous person. Listen, they may have just taken something that the Lord meant just for them or just for one other individual and said it to the whole group. Or maybe they didn't say everything that God wanted them to say. Or maybe they said uh, more than what God wanted them to say. And it could have substantially changed the message. 
But friends, if a person has the right heart, they should be encouraged to keep stepping out in faith and trust in God that he wants to use them. And of course, if a person has a wrong heart and is chronically speaking forth wrong or inappropriate prophecies, then they need to be confronted by the leadership. But where there's a right heart and the right thing, all you have to do is, Alicia, you know, I just don't judge that word being from the Lord. Bless you, brother, sister. You wanted to minister to the congregation, but, you know, God will give you more guidance as, as you keep seeking him. And friends, it's not a sin. You know, you, you felt God was putting something on your heart and you stepped out in faith. God bless you for your desire to bless other people. And you got it wrong. But might I say as well that this is the grave danger of people going around considering themselves prophets. Can I just tell you right now, don't take that title. I don't care if God uses you five Wednesday nights in a row to deliver five prophecies that are dead on. I don't care if you're predicting tomorrow's Dow Jones closing average five weeks in a row dead on the mark. Don't take the title prophet. That's my title. No, I'm kidding. No, don't take the title prophet. Because, my friends, you go around and start claiming the title prophet and the gloves are off. Then you better be 100% consistent all the time or you're out of here. And might I just say, we we won't tolerate it in this church at all. We won't tolerate anybody going around calling themselves a prophet. God wants to use you to minister in the gift of prophecy? Praise God. That's a far cry than the than the potential spiritual pride and arrogance that can go around somebody calling themselves a prophet. But friends, rightly used, the gift of prophecy can be a great blessing in a church. Not only will it operate spontaneously through the preaching, but it will also come through the members of the church family. I want you to listen to something written in the late 2nd and early 3rd century by the early church leader Tertullian. He describes how the gift of prophecy worked in their church services. Listen to this. He says... We now have among us a sister whose lot it has been favored with sundry gifts of revelation, which she experiences in the spirit by ecstatic vision amidst the sacred rites in the Lord's day in the church. She converses with angels and sometimes even with the Lord. She both sees and hears mysterious communications. Some men's hearts she understands, and to those who are in need, she distributes remedies. Whether it be in the reading of the scriptures, or the chanting of psalms, or in the preaching of sermons, or in the offering up of prayers, in all these religious services, matter and opportunity are afforded to her of seeing visions. So Tertullian's saying, we've got a gal in our church. God speaks to her in dramatic ways all the time. Now listen what she does with it. This is fascinating. I'm quoting again. After the people are dismissed at the conclusion of the sacred services, she is in the regular habit of reporting to us whatever things she may have seen in her vision. For all her communications are examined with the most scrupulous care in order that their truth may be probed as the apostle most surely foretold that there were to be spiritual gifts in the church. You see what happened? So a woman receives messages. God speaks through the church service. So what does she do? She gets up at the end and says, Thus saith the Lord, my children. No, what she does is she, goes, she takes those words to the leadership of the church. She says, This is what God put on my heart. And what do they do? They carefully judge it. And what's edifying for the body? They relate to the body. And you see, it's a beautiful way for it to, for it to function in the church. So going on here, the, the prophets, as he goes, says here in verse 29, Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. He says, but if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. I want you to notice a few things in these verses. Verse 30, he says, let the first keep silent. Verse 31, he says, you can all prophesy one by one. And in verse 32, he says, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You see, here Paul is very plainly explaining that no one is overwhelmed by prophecy. They are in control of the exercise of the gift even when the Holy Spirit is moving upon them. Friends, the Holy Spirit does not take control like a demon does in demonic possession. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit does not take control of a person like a demon does in demonic possession. So then how do we explain the actions of those who shout and writhe and jump and act weird, supposedly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Let me say, just off the bat, 
I don't feel like I need to explain such things. I don't practice such unbiblical excesses. I don't need to explain them. But I would say this. Oftentimes, I would suppose that such people are actually resisting the Holy Spirit, which leads to stress. And stress can find an outlet in very strange ways in a person. But I don't think it's the Holy Spirit making the people do that. See, my friends, do you see what he's saying here in verse 31? That all may learn and all may be encouraged. Friends, this is the goal. The gifts are merely servants to this purpose. The purpose is never to have a tongue or a prophecy at a meeting. You can have a hundred tongues or a thousand prophecies, but if no one learns or is encouraged, there's no point to it. Friends, you know, here on Wednesday night after uh, the time of teaching, we have a time of worship and a time of waiting on the Lord, and people are free to share a word from God or, or uh, a prophecy that God's put on their heart or scripture that God's put on their heart. People are, are free and given the opportunity to do that. And let's say that we have an evening and nothing's shared. We just worship God and people quietly wait on the Lord after that. And you know, service is dismissed and somebody comes up and says, well, how'd you think that went? You, know, you must have been really disappointed. There weren't any tongues uttered. There weren't any prophecies. You know, wow, what a downer afterglow. There was no action flowing. Listen, my friends, you take a step back and you ask, did people learn and were they encouraged? That's the goal. That's it. Did they learn? Were they encouraged? Friends, spiritual gifts are like tools in God's toolbox. And despite what we as men often, you know, like to do in the garage, the goal isn't having tools. That's not the goal. Look at my tools. Showing them off. Wow. You know, what a shiny red. Like that? Woo. And men kind of do that, don't they? Come on, look at my tools. You know, wow. Friends, the tools in and of themselves aren't the point. The point is what's done with them and, let's just say, getting the car running. If the car isn't running, you can say, look at how great the tools are. You know what? If the car's running, then who cares about the tools? The mechanic chooses the tools as he pleases. The bottom line is, are people learning? Are they being encouraged? We judge the success of a meeting, not if tongues were present, not if prophecy was present, but if God's people learned, if they were encouraged, if they were built up, and if they were equipped. That's the measure. And notice this. He says at the end of verse 33, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Well, If there is confusion and disorder at a church meeting, it isn't from God. Now listen, friends, God may do things that we don't understand. God may do things that seem strange or unpredictable. But there will not be a general atmosphere of confusion or weirdness. Do you know some people, in justifying their strange and unbiblical practices at church meetings, have declared this spiritual principle? Hang on to this. They say, God cannot reach the heart without offending the mind. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but that's sort of a line going around in some churches. God cannot reach the heart without offending the mind. Can I just say that that's unscriptural nonsense? Absolute nonsense. And it leads to the idea that the more confused, the more crazy, the more weird it is, then the more it must be from God. Friends, how far from the simple teaching of the Apostle Paul? Let's make our way through the rest of the chapter here. Paul says, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in the church. All right, moving on. Verse 36. Seriously. Time escapes us here on Wednesday evening. So I won't say as much about this as I could, but I I think it's important that we make the context key here. Paul previously in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, has talked about the right of women to pray and prophesy in the church with a proper covering. 
In this letter, Paul has already spoken about women having the right to pray and prophesy in the church if they have a proper covering of authority. I have to believe that when Paul talks about a woman speaking in the church here, he's talking about speaking in an authoritative sense, and I would say speaking in the sense of judging prophecy. You see, Paul has declared that prophecy must be tested, it must be judged. Well, who's supposed to judge it? The leadership of the church. And Paul's saying women aren't to be in the doctrinal or in the administrative leadership of the church. And we could talk a lot about this from other passages of Scripture, like uh, 1 Timothy and other passages. But friends, I think the bottom line here is Paul is saying that women do not have the right to judge prophecy in general meetings of the church, though, of course, in a meeting among women, it should be the leadership of the women who are there judging the prophecy. Instead of judging prophecy, women should be submissive to what the leadership of the church judges regarding words of prophecy. I can't take what Paul is saying here is saying that women should just shut up and never speak in church because already in this very same letter he's talked about women having the right to pray or prophesy if their heads are properly covered. So when he's talking about speaking, I have to take it from the context that he's talking about speaking in the sense of judging prophecy because that's just what he's been talking about. Then he goes on to say, if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. You know, in the ancient world, just as in some modern cultures, women and men would sit in different groups in the church. And Paul may be referring to the practice of a woman, you know, sort of calling out to her husband or asking a question or being disruptive during a church service. Remember, a lot of these women in the Corinthian church came from pagan Gentile cultures. They didn't come from the Jewish synagogue where women would know how to conduct themselves properly in a house of God. They came from the more rowdy temple where it was more like a big party than it was a a sacred service. And Paul's saying, listen, you know, keep your questions at home. Paul's teaching them how to conduct themselves at a church meeting. So when he says, concluding there in verse 35, that it's shameful for women to speak in church, again, because Paul has already stated the right of women to pray and prophesy under proper authority in chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, the context suggests that speak refers to either the judging of prophecy or disruptive speaking. Verse 36. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it only you that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Wow. You know, Paul is sort of facing down the arrogance of some of the Corinthian Christians who thought that they were so spiritual that they didn't really need to respect scriptural order. You know, they had gone beyond that. Right? I'm, that's how spiritual I am. Paul says, no. If you're spiritual, you're going to obey what I say. He goes, you know what? And if you want to be ignorant of it, then fine. Be ignorant. That's what you are. You're ignorant. Now, in verses 39 and 40, he gives a very fitting summary of the chapter. He says, Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Friends, he says, desire earnestly to prophesy. Why? Because prophecy can be a blessing to other people, and when you come together as a church, it's far better to be a blessing to someone else. Now, Paul will carefully regulate and maybe even discourage the use of tongues at a church meeting, but he won't forbid it. The gift of tongues is not to be despised. It especially has a valuable place in personal devotions, but the gatherings of the church should emphasize prophecy and mutual blessing. So he says, let all things be done decently and in order. Friends, God is a God of order and peace. And he wants order when the church comes together. When the gifts of the Spirit are given an unscriptural focus, it discredits the true work of the Holy Spirit. And it often leads people to deny the gifts because they see unbiblical excess. Friends, sometimes the greatest enemies of the true working of the Holy Spirit are the pretended friends of the gifts of the Spirit. However, Let's remember that the order that we seek is the order of the living, not the dead. Friends, some people have cultivated an 
atmosphere of gloom and depression among Christians in the name of let all things be done decently in order. Yeah, it's in order, but as I was talking before about stable, it's the order of a corpse. Who wants that? Why not end with a couple quotes from Spurgeon? Why, brethren, true praise sets the heart ringing its bells and hanging out its streamers. Never hang your flag at half-mast when you praise God. No, run up every color. Let every banner wave in the breeze. And let all powers and passions of your spirit exult and rejoice in God your Savior. They rejoiced. We are really most horribly afraid of being too happy. Some Christians think cheerfulness a very dangerous folly, if not a ruinous vice. And then he says, propriety very greatly objects to the praise which is rendered by the primitive Methodists at times. Those were the Pentecostals in Spurgeon's day. Because their shouts and hallelujahs are thought by some delicate minds to be very shocking. I would not, however, join in the censure, lest I should be numbered among the Pharisees who said, Master, rebuke thy disciples. I wished more people were as earnest and even as vehement as the Methodists used to be. In our Lord's days, we see that the people expressed the joy which they felt. I am not so sure that they expressed it in a most tunable manner. In other words, they might not have been always on key when they sang. But at any rate, they expressed it in a hearty, lusty shout. Friends, don't be afraid to worship God. Don't be afraid to let God use you in a word of prophecy or exhortation or in the reading of Scripture. I think we have a great foundation at this church. I do not worry about us going to unscriptural excess when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. We have a great foundation in the Word of God. And we can be as free as the Holy Spirit wants us to be in seeing His moving among us. Let's pray.